Shoe Manufacturer Podcast, your monthly source of expert comment on the big issues facing the food and drink manufacturing industry. As always, I'm joined by my lovely co-host, Gwen Riddler. Hey, how are you? And William Dodds. Hi, Beth. It's nice to be here. And we've got a cracking episode ahead of us. This month, we've spoken to Patrick McManara, Global Innovations and Quality Manager at Testing Lab Leader Intertech, about all things food safety and the challenges and solutions surrounding recalls and retaining integrity in your business. But before we delve into what Patrick has to say, we can't forget Good Month, Bad Month, our update of some of the highs and lows of the food and drink industry in the past month. So, Gwen, it's November. What should manufacturers be celebrating? Apart from the run up to Christmas. So, yes, thank you for for introducing Beth. Uh, So for our Good Month story, uh, I'd like to highlight the good work being done by the Welsh Government to support the food and drink industry. Uh, Regular readers of the site will know that our own deputy editor, uh, William Dodds, spent two jam-packed days at Taste Wales, the biannual international food and drink trade event organised by the Welsh Government. It was great to hear about the opportunities that the event was generating for manufacturers with first-hand accounts on how they had picked up new businesses in the previous iteration in 2021. It's these kind of celebrations of the industry that bring so many people together that I love hearing about. Uh, We went through the longest period of shows not happening due to the pandemic. Those who know that that events like Taste Wales are thriving and supporting so many people in the industry is, uh, I think, a comforting thought for the industry. We've, I feel like we're a bit like in the pandemic now because we're actually recording this remotely as well. So this is this is kind of a, a, a throwback. I know we've got yeah. to the hybrid setting, but normally, uh, listeners, our, our mic quality might be a little bit more enhanced because we are uh, sat in the same room. Um, but yes, going to to Taste Wales, Will, you were there. Um, so, you know, coming from the horse's mouth, can you tell us a little more about what you experienced? Yeah, it was it was a, a fantastic two days, uh, to be honest, was something I really enjoyed getting to meet a really interesting range of different food and drink manufacturing businesses. So that can range from some kind of uh, larger organisations that are operating all around the world. This was the first year, um, if I'm correct, that they had businesses larger than SMEs. So previously it was just for small and medium sized businesses. And now they've invited any kind of business. Uh, in Wales that can attend. So it was really good to get that broad range from people who are just working, you know, on their own uh, as well. Um, I've produced quite a lot of content for, for the site, uh, following some of the interviews that I did, including Rachel's Organic, uh, Drop uh, Bear Beers, so it's the largest non-alcoholic brewery in the UK. And just hearing about their experiences working with the Welsh Government and how that support has allowed them to uh, go on to bigger and better things. So yeah, it was a, a really uh, fascinating two days and uh, one that I would definitely recommend for any food manufacturers listening in Wales. Absolutely. It sounded it sounded really, really great. I was very jealous. <laughs> but um, it's it's not all, all been uh, sunshine and, and rainbows, particularly if you live in the UK. It's been very rainy and grey. Uh, but nothing really changes there, though. It's always rainy and grey here in the UK. On that note, Gwen, what's the the bad news? What's the the doom and gloom for November? I'd be far from me to decline such a request, as morbid as it may be. But if I were to pick something to worry about myself, it would be our ongoing challenges with food insecurity. A couple of weeks ago, the House of Lords Horticultural Sector Committee published its report 
on the horticulture industry uh, and it didn't have a lot of nice things to say. Now, the most pressing thing that you need to know about is that is the growing of fruit and vegetables in the report really nailed the hammer home that the UK cannot support itself if import stocks dried up. Uh, it really highlighted the lack of cross-departmental working, poor ministerial oversight and a lack of dedicated horticulture strategy um, that it claims had left holes in the UK's food security. And it kind of does paint a picture of a country that wasn't prepared to leave the EU. Comments or either way or what, you know, how will you feel about that? Um, but it's now at the mercy of imported food, a situation that everyone was adamant they didn't want. Um, and we can only really hope that this report kickstarts some action to turn things around uh, or things could get worse. Yeah, so it's probably important here to define horticulture. So it relates to, um, and I'm taking this from the report, um, to the production, cultivation and management of fruit, veg and um, ornamental plants. The UK horticulture industry is worth more than five billion with an excess of 50,000 people employed within it. So it's a it's a pretty crucial um, sector for the UK. Um, I led with a definition there, as the report suggests that there is a distinct lack of understanding around what this is from the government. Um, and that's a, that's a phrase which has been uttered before, um, I will say in our most recent business leaders forum, basically around the, the food sector in general and, and the the understanding or lack of uh, understanding that UK policymakers have. Um, the report flags that the sector has a lot of potential to deliver on a range of targets, some of which are set out in the government's 25-year environmental plan. But Gwen, as you mentioned, pressures, including poor um, oversight, the education gap, um, a lack of financial support, means it's been difficult to actually action them. Um, and of course, without kind of UK resilience, so being kind of um, reliant on other countries, um, you know, we're going to be inviting big issues into our supply chain. That previously wasn't so much of an issue, um, but we've had a chain of events which have shown that actually self-resilience is incredibly important and also highlighted how fragile the UK food sector um, is. So that's going to bring in issues of, of food security and also of safety as well. Um, obviously, if we can't get, you know, food, we might have to resort to, um, you know, plan, uh, plan B, plan C, plan D um, suppliers. You know, have you done all your checks on those suppliers, for example? I think it, it really does emphasise, as, as Beth was saying, uh, what people were saying at the Business Leaders Forum um, earlier this year. And that really is that they don't feel like they have the support and understanding from government, which actually, I suppose, just linking it back to my trip to Wales was something that they felt the support was really good there. And that the government had clearly emphasised the food and drink industry as being an area where there's some strength. It's not to say uh, that that support doesn't exist uh, throughout the rest of the UK, but um, I think that getting greater levels of support and more understanding from the UK government, from Westminster, uh, is definitely important uh, as we look to tackle these issues going forward. So Patrick is our guest for this month's episode and he's a leading figure in the world of food safety and recalls and he told food manufacturer basically what the most common risks are, the emerging issues manufacturers need to keep their eyes peeled on and the potential weaknesses in the supply chain some businesses could be overlooking. So we've done a very nice segue there team uh, into this interview and here is what Patrick had to say. 
Patrick. Thanks so much for joining us on the Food Manufacturer Podcast. Thank you, Beth, and uh, good afternoon to you. And hello to everybody who's tuning in today. Thank you for having me. So as we heard from our lovely intro, uh, we're going to be talking about food safety issues and, and sort of vehicles and what you can do to really maintain integrity and make sure that you don't end up in a situation such as that. Um, so what I thought would be a great start, Patrick, is um, so tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, you know, what your expertise is within this area. And then we can start looking at some of the, the wider food safety issues that we're seeing today. Sure. Uh, well, my background is I'm actually a nutritional chemist and I worked for many, many years for Exova, which was formerly Body Coat and Law Labs. And anybody who knows those businesses will know that they were primarily used by retail supermarkets. So my background was actually in due diligence management for those supermarkets. It was actually in scheduling, testing and looking at due diligence in terms of risk management for the supermarkets themselves. So we would be looking at an annual due diligence set testing and trying to understand risks both from the internal market and from suppliers. Um, more recently, I've been working for Intertech's Global Food Line, um, on which I do give technical support to our 34 food labs globally. Um, as you might know, we're in 109 countries um, and we do actually cover a, a lot of different risk management um, systems. So I'm hoping today we can go into some of the background to food recalls and perhaps what some of the audience might be interested in and how we can prevent them. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Patrick. So let's look at, at you know, the sort of issues that we're seeing today. I know that's quite a broad question, but in terms of sort of the most common food safety um, risks. I think um, in terms of the most common and, and one of the tasks that I do in my day job is to update Intertech's Horizon Scan platform. And what that does, it takes in data. There are issues that have been raised all over the world from 188 different countries on food products that have some kind of issue. And in terms of the number of issues reported, the most common that we find are related to pesticide residues, undeclared allergens and microbiological safety. Those are the three. Um, following that, foreign bodies is probably the next one that we see most. I think it's important as well, not just to look at the absolute, absolute numbers. So not just the frequency of occurrence. And we know that pesticides is an issue. Nobody's going to be surprised that salmonella and listeria are an issue. Undeclared allergens we're going to come back to as a major issue. But the thing to look at is emerging issues. What are coming through that we haven't seen before? But also what is on the increase? We see a lot more now in terms of things like mycotoxins, um, illegal dyes and food colours, issues with food fraud. What we would capture as not of the quality or not of the substance. That's the formal way of saying something's being adulterated or substituted or is in some way, shape or form, not the product that you've, you've purchased. So I think it's important to look at the numbers and the most frequent areas of failure, but also keep an eye on what's on the increase because that gives you a feel for the type of 
commodities that are involved, the type of countries these commodities come from, and the issues that we're finding. And then you can start to see the impact on your own business. <clears throat> I think, um, unsurprisingly, climate change, severe weather events get cited a lot for the increase in certain things, particularly things like mycotoxins and pesticide residues. And um, the disruption in supply chains caused by crop failures, geopolitical issues, also drives pricing pressure, which in turn provides a profit motive for fraudulent behaviour, criminal behaviour. So all of these things we consider when we're trending the issues. It's interesting you mentioned pesticides being sort of uh, top of the charts. <laughs> it makes it sound like it's sort of um, some sort of top of the pops there, doesn't it? Um, but in terms of the recalls that you generally see when you're looking at, you know, the, the FSA, because we, we tend to do a lot of recall roundups, it is normally kind of undeclared allergens. I don't tend to see those the pesticides as much so it's it's very it's very interesting that you you say that um what what do you think the the reason for that we you know maybe pesticides is a big risk but we've got a, a bigger handle on it um i think what you see is that pesticides occurs most often in big commodities cereal crops and things like rice they get stopped at ports so they don't end up being captured as product recalls they end up not thankfully very often not reaching the food chain. So it's quite rare that you see a finished product sent to a consumer on a shelf, removed uh, and classified as a product recall for something like pesticides. And I would agree as well, that some people do have a very good handle on it. People who are net importers of big commodities, that's where their risk is. They know that's where their risk is. So they either do a lot more testing around it or they simply work with suppliers who know what they're doing. The risk, of course, comes from things like the COVID-19 pandemic, things like crop failure, things like India deciding not to export basmati rice. Suddenly you've got to find an alternative supplier. When you've got to find an alternative supplier in a hurry, how deep a background check can you perform? How much work can you do? Are you reliant entirely on the supplier telling you, don't worry, I've got recent due diligence testing results that says I'm pesticide free. So it's disruption to the supply chain that sometimes causes these issues. But the absence of pesticides in product recall numbers is very often it's, it's flagged as a commodity at port before it's used. In, it's a pre-production issue, if you will. I mean, good that it's not ending up on supermarket shelves, but not so great for business because obviously it's still going to be a costly um, you yeah. know, incident if it happens. And um, there's a couple of things there that would be interesting to unpack, um, <laughs> particularly as you know, your let's call them plan, um, maybe plan D suppliers. You know, uh, in terms of when when commodities are, are difficult to to obtain and what you can do there. But I thought it'd be interesting, really, to talk about um, first um, looking at the the emerging issues, maybe ones that aren't, you know, your, your top five. Um, but as you said, issues that are increasing. What would you say are things to be to be mindful of that might not be on the radar as much? I'm not sure they wouldn't be on the radar. It's just that I think manufacturers and indeed retailers, they've got a limited budget. So they go where the immediate risk is. 
So I think mycotoxins, everybody now starts to understand that this is a huge increase. And a lot of this is driven by severe weather events and by climate change. Um, when years ago, when I, I first started looking at mycotoxins, we used to be looking at, you know, sub-Saharan Africa, we'd be looking at the Middle East. We're now looking at Southern Europe, which are getting exceptional temperatures. And it's more and more difficult to store products and, and keep that level of temperature control. And mycotoxins particularly love warmer moisture weather. And, and I think that climate change is driving that increase. So you've seen now the prevalence of mycotoxins and also, you know, not just the standard mycotoxins that you expect. Everyone used to look at aflatoxins, particularly B1, but things like alkaloids as well. And a survey that was done in the EU a couple of years ago, and they, they tested, I think, about 3,500 samples from commodities all over Europe. And they found that um, something like 60% of them had mycotoxins present, but there was almost always more than one mycotoxin. So how do you go about risk managing it? And it's looking at what the commodity is, looking at the type of crop, the country of origin, and getting supplier feedback, looking at weather patterns. You know, has there been a problem with, with crops in that area? So there's actually quite a lot of interrogative work, I think, to be done to keep on top of that. And the other one that, that comes up a little more often now, you've seen things like norovirus starting to, to come up more often, and certain strains of E. coli, which again happens with severe weather events and warmer weather. So again, you start to see that increase, and there will be a point at which people will think, maybe I need to start doing some monitoring. Maybe I need to start including it on my due diligence, just to do some baseline testing to see what my risk is. So those are things that do come up. So Patrick spoke there about mycotoxins and whilst I'm sure most listeners will know what these are, I thought it would be useful to provide a definition. So these are toxic compounds that are naturally produced by different types of fungi and they enter the food chain as a result of infection of crops before or after the harvest. I'm basically like a walking dictionary this mm. this episode, aren't I? I keep, keep coming in with my definitions. Um, I think what I enjoyed most from Patrick's introduction, and we will hear more from him in a moment, is um, how he pointed attention to emerging issues and understanding not just you know being aware of what we're already aware of, but understanding what is coming down the track and what kind of food safety issues are increasing. Um, in particular, he pointed to, as I said, mycotoxins um, increasing in number because of climate change and you know, the, the toxins enjoying those uh, the higher temperatures. Gwen, well, what is your take on, on this? Definitely, it was very eye-opening for me to see how the food industry is affected by these issues much further down the supply chain than uh, I initially see every day. Obviously, we see announcements for recalls and products being pulled off the shelves all the time for obviously issues surrounding allergens, foreign contaminants, but you never sometimes I don't stop to think about 
the issues you know that happen before the, the, those products even get into the factory the, the initial thought is if it's raining and there's problems with crops then those crops don't come to us and that's a slightly issue but then the issue that that rain could also be causing the creation or the build up of mycotoxin creating a whole different problem that isn't just to do with getting the supply to somewhere it's a much larger issue than uh, i thought it would be just because it hasn't come into my sort of sphere of influence too often and yeah it'd be interesting to know just how often it is that manufacturers do deal with those kind of problems themselves i suppose from my end it, it really just is a kind of further illustration of the concrete ways that climate change is affecting the entire food and man uh, food and drink manufacturing industry and uh, shows just how important it is that we continue to invest in ways of, of tackling these impacts uh, because there are just going to be more issues coming uh, down the pike unfortunately and uh, that's going to further threaten our food security um, as Beth was talking about also with the with the story earlier it's quite a it's certainly quite a, a gloomy outlook um, as we approach the end of the year but uh, it's one of these realities that uh, the industry and uh, wider uh, society has to face up to. I mean, it's probably going to mean that at some point regions where just on a, a slighter side, certain regions that are really good for particular um, commodities will become less good and other areas will become more suitable as kind of um, weather patterns change. It's a really interesting one, very worrying. Um, but yeah, I mean, absolutely. And, and sort of looping back to that bad news, Gwen, one of the things flagged there was a lack of um, investment. Uh, in particular into technology. Now I'm guessing a lot of things that, that are going to be helping us resolve some of these issues are going to be technology. So um, it's, it's very, very important that the UK government does start to invest more in that. And we have been seeing some some strides in this area, but obviously, you know, from reports like this, it, it's not enough. Let's take it back to Patrick to hear what he has to say about tackling these marching mycotoxins. So looking at something like, um, you know, these marching mycotoxins, let's call them, um, which are cropping up in <laughs> just all the puns there, which are cropping up in in a new areas. What What kind of monitoring can you do? What sort of the you know a way in which we can avoid these situations i think it's exactly that i think it is horizon scanning i mean firstly you can work with reputable suppliers that that, that is your biggest single probably preventive action is work with suppliers who are in line with your ethics and your integrity and the people who do this best have personal relationships with their suppliers it's not always possible but they've They've had boots on the ground where the supplier works. They've seen the operation. They've seen the due diligence that the supplier has in place. Secondly, keep an eye on emerging issues from certain parts of the world. I mean, it is weather patterns, it is climate change, it is crop failure. But we've, we've seen from recent events that geopolitical events have a major impact on the availability of certain products. And then the temptation is to ship unsuitable or, or you know, unhealthy product onto the market as a substitute. So just be mindful of things like that. For mycotoxins, the risk is very much linked to certain commodity types. 
So you can look at particular mycotoxins. I wouldn't expect anybody to do a complete mycotoxin screen because you don't need to. But you may want to look at a couple of markers, some of the high-risk mycotoxins, and then think about whether it's wheat or rice or maize. What is the crop you're dealing with? What's the likelihood? See a lot in America with peanuts. Uh, they've had huge problems with the peanut stocks and aflatoxin particularly over the last 12 months. So it's all about risk assessment. What's the, the product matrix? What's the origin? What are the recent and historical issues that are associated with it? And how much of it do you use? You know, has your supplier reported any issues? Check your supplier out. You know? I, I imagine technology will come into to play here in terms of helping you um, keep keep a track of these and manage it, really. I, I think so. There, there are supplier platforms um, that actually take in all this data, look at supplier performance and monitor those things. Um, there are Horizon Scan platforms. And, yeah, we have all of these things. I have to say other companies are available. I don't know if it's like the BBC, <laughs> but I have to say that. But um, these things that we we offer for risk management and, and, you know, there are four online data capture means of measuring these things. And, and yes, big data, I think as we'll see later in relation to testing, but big data is one of those things now that informs people. But constantly look at your risk. And, and very often people look at due diligence scheduling annually. Well, I think we've seen in the last 12 months, that's not going to be enough. It probably won't. So constantly update, make your due diligence live document. And um, yes, take in big data, look at platforms that are available. Look at um, the information that the EU provides through RASA, through EFSA. You know, there's some great free platforms that are there to access. I know everyone's time poor, but seriously, it's time well spent. Speak to your technical provider. They can help. In terms of kind of mycotoxins and looking at areas um, that, that sort of cause the most recall. So you mentioned earlier pesticides kind of more being stopped at port. But in terms of the, the things that are more likely to cause um, cause that recall issue or that withdrawal issue, um, which I learned a few years ago, are different. So. Um, I'm sure many people will know that listening to the podcast. But those, you know, the common reasons for for, for product being um, withdrawn or recalled. Um, you mentioned undeclared allergens there, and that is tends to be the one that I, I do see cropping up in the the it's, FSA kind of news. It's not alert. surprising. I mean, two out of every five product recalls are related to undeclared allergens. Um, not just nationally in the UK, but globally, you tend to see that figure is played out in, in both internationally and, and in the UK. And um, behind that, there is listeria, salmonella, foreign bodies, but undeclared allergens for, for any number of reasons is one of the things that does cause them a lot of issues. And it could be adventitious contamination. It could be a process control issue. Sometimes it's about um, product segregation or ingredient segregation on the site. Sometimes it can just be a supplier not knowing their own raw materials. Your, your supplier may not have that level of segregation in place, which is why supplier control is so important. If you're putting a lot of trust in your supplier and you're not testing the raw materials to come in, you know, 
And, and again, a lot of this is looking at raw material issues and undeclared allergens in raw materials. And it could be, don't forget, you don't need a lot of allergenic material to flag as being unhealthy or unsafe. You know, for gluten, for instance, you're talking 20 parts per million, which is quite a small amount. 20 parts per million of gluten in a gluten-free product is illegal. In other cases, things like dairy, peanuts, soya, all of those, although there are mandatory limits for it, they tend to have to be below quite low limits of detection to be declared safe. And then you're talking 10 ppm, 10 ppb in some cases. Parts per billion is quite a low number. So I think some of the things that people need to look at is their raw materials supply, um, process controls on site, um, training you know, for, for staff is quite key, uh, safety culture on site as well. Some businesses are lucky. They have a lot of long serving staff who know the business well, they know the procedures, and they, they've been with the company a long time. Other people, and we've seen this in, in manufacturing businesses, there is difficulty in getting people in to the business and then sometimes the staff churn has risen. So getting new people in consistently and getting that level of knowledge is sometimes quite difficult. But um, the other thing, of course, is, is labelling, understanding precautionary labelling. What should I say? Um, and, and actually, if I'm using precautionary labelling, am I doing that just to cover myself or am I actually giving valuable information to consumers? Am I doing it for the right reasons? And um, there's an interesting one in the States because um, the US added sesame to their allergens list. And a lot of companies they found, instead of putting in a procedure to segregate sesame from the bulk of their materials, the bulk of their products, they simply started putting precautionary labels on it or adding sesame to the product and saying contains sesame. So I can't be bothered segregating it. So I'm just going to add it and then I'll, it's intentionally there. So you can't buy my product anymore, which is something that, that the FDA and the USDA had simply not thought of. It was an unintended consequence of making sesame um, now part of the prescribed list that US companies started adding sesame to products. Just so that I'll put it on the label because it's cheaper than putting in the controls on site. So. Thinking about your specifications, having proper specification review, labelling review, addressing the controls on site, monitoring the suppliers. I know it sounds like a lot of work, think about the cost of recalls. So what I found really eye-opening about Patrick's story uh, of the US producers opting to put sesame seeds into their products to deal with the potential labeling issues. For me, it feels like doing the right thing just seems to be the hardest and least logical way of doing things, which is kind of depressing that instead of trying to help people out, it's just gonna hurt your business in the long run to try and do what essentially is the right thing to do to put out a product that more people can need to make people aware just in case that there is or isn't you know in this case sesame was the added to products so how bring that over to the uk for example if we were to suddenly say tomorrow that uh we'll just take peanuts in all of our chocolate just to bypass any labeling issues just the amount of choice that'd be taken away from consumers if we started just adding these 
allergens into the products sure there'll be a lot less recalls ultimately because they wouldn't have to worry about it but there would just be so many more less choice on the market in general it's it's kind of depressing to think that manufacturing not just in the sense of the maybe less choice but also the fact that manufacturers feel that they're so cornered and so unable to enact these changes that they're forced to take this easy way out otherwise you know they risk their businesses so it's 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 sad on all fronts essentially it also obviously limits choice as well for people who do suffer from various allergens uh, i know that already they're having to forego lots of products uh, that maybe they enjoy otherwise out of genuine fear about whether that product is going to be uh, suitable for them to eat so that is certainly a, a disappointing thing to hear and hopefully you would you think that the food and drink manufacturing sector can come up with with better ways of dealing with this going forward but I do know it's a, it's a big concern. It all comes down to liability and to expense so you know we've, we've spoken to um, to manufacturers that want to do free from products but they they can't afford to, to do it I mean anecdotally uh, a manufacturer told uh, all three of us in, in um, uh, discussion once that they had to open a, a completely new factory that's one way around it right um you know not going to be a well very limited risk of cross-contamination there but not everyone has that privilege if you're a smaller company um and obviously the actual market for free from is very small that's not to say that we shouldn't be catering to it and have a diverse range of options you know as someone that can't eat certain commodities myself um i'm a, a massive advocate for having as much as many options as i as i can um the free from section uh in my my local supermarket is um is pretty small but you know i'm grateful for for what i can have but yeah i mean because it's such a small segment of the market it's more difficult to to obviously scale up so if you are a specialist in that area then you know you've got to really rely on the fact that you're going to be having really really great sales that you're going to be turning a profit that you can continue and then you know so and then obviously the smaller players that might want to go into that area like I said you know they kind of got their hands tied and we could go on for hours discussing the intricacies of of, of sort of uh, labelling and allergens and responsibility. Uh, you know, I think I actually said to, to Patrick it was a full-time job. So let's find out what he thinks manufacturers should be doing um, to make sure that they're spending enough time on this. So what, what sort of things should food manufacturers be doing to ensure that they are... Um, spending enough time on this it's a difficult one because um you're talking about an industry there is no one size fits all there are rules to which you need to apply in fact the entire principle of due diligence yeah allows you to apply due diligence to fit your business so it is all about proper risk assessment in your business um if you can show that you've reduced the risk in your business as far as it's practicable and you've done the right amount of supplier approval, raw material testing, finished product testing, you've got a cleaning procedure in place, you've got training in place, you've got a proper HACCP procedure that's broad enough to look at all the risks. And and this is what certification is for really. This is what things like BRC and FSSC, IFS do. They go in and they apply a certification standard to an approach where they can look at the specifics of that business 
and apply the principles of safe operation um, to their own standards. So I, I think it's it's about having someone in your business with experience who can see where the risk is and who can look ahead and see where the risk might be. One of the things that people do forget because we live in the now is considerations of what might be coming later. Not just regulations that are planned to come into force in the next three to six months, but consultations that are taking place now that may lead to regulations. The amount of people who got caught out by the new display regulations for the HFSS rules, you know, where can I display this product if it's high fat, salt and sugar? You know, you can't any longer put it in the middle of an aisle or put it prominently or you can't make these sort of offers. The amount of people who simply didn't address that until it got to the point where it became illegal to do what they were doing means that they didn't really look ahead. So speak to your technical provider, take some advice, or if you've got a technical person in your group, either subscribe to a regulatory platform, get updates, read food manufacturer, you do a lot of regs and legs. <laughs> so things like that, read around your subjects. You know, there's a lot on health initiatives. If they continue with salt reduction, fat reduction, sugar reduction, how does that affect your product? Does it mean I fall into a different bracket? Does it mean I have to label it differently? You know, try and look a little bit ahead, scan the horizon for regulatory changes, emerging issues, and, and potential climate change impact. All of that is coming. It is such a minefield. It is so much information to, to take in. You know, not every business can employ um, a labelling expert, a specifications expert, an MPD expert someone who's an expert in regulatory. To an extent, everyone is reliant on the food safety families to support them. And, and that's why good relationships between laboratory and certification providers mean that you, know, you become the technical arm of a manufacturing or retail business. That's how the best relationships work. When you're, you're looking to have testing done, um, by a third party, what are some of the key things that manufacturers should identify in a lab partner? Or is this something that they can handle themselves? I don't know. Some large businesses have very, very expert in-house technical teams and, and they are experts and, and we deal with them and they know their business uh, and they are fantastic. Other people don't have the luxury of that. When you're looking for third party support from laboratories, um, Work with labs to understand your products, your risk and your testing requirements. I mean, it seems like a logical approach. Why wouldn't you want that? But actually, it's really, really important. And, and actually, you can ask them sometimes. You can ask laboratories, not who they work for. I guarantee no laboratory will tell you who they work for. If you, if you do come across one, the unlikely event that you come across a lab that tells you who their customers are, run run a mile, run away very, very quickly. However, you can ask them, do you work with people in our sector? And they will tell you. And the reason that's important, for instance, if you're a meat manufacturer, you're in dairy, you're in ready-to-eat salads, you're making ready meals, why is it important that they work with other people in your sector? Well, they'll understand the risks that are inherent in your product. They'll have optimised their testing to manage them. They'll understand how your products perform under analysis. 
they'll understand what adverse results mean. And sometimes they can help you understand those results, the impact and the origin of those results, which is all really, really important. So you can ask them, say, do you work with other people in our sector? And they will tell you. And very often it will be the case. Most labs will work with a broad family of businesses in different sectors. But as well, accreditation for labs is very important because it means they're independently audited and they're accredited to an international standard, ISO 17025. And that gives them credibility. It means they have to meet a standard. And it very often means that they'll have used products from your sector or from your matrices as reference materials. They'll have developed their methods with your products in mind. So the first question I would ask them is, do you work with other people that do what we do? And almost certainly they'll say yes, and they can put you in touch with a chemist or a microbiologist who can talk you through some of the testing that might help you. Um, one of the questions that I often ask new customers as well is I ask them, what do you want the results to demonstrate? What do you want the results to achieve? And, and, and actually, that's a really important thing to ask, because without context, we don't know. Let me give you an example. Uh, we'll say a customer comes to me and says, I would like TBCs, Entros, Salmonella and Listeria, please. And we say, yeah, that's no problem. That's fairly routine work for us. We send them a quote, seven shillings and sixpence or wherever it is in new money. There you go. <laughs> and we do the work. We get a certificate. All the certificate says less than X. Send it back to the customer. He's happy. Everyone's happy. Yeah. Yeah. No. no. Oh, you tricked comes, me. <laughs> the customer comes back and then says, well, yeah, I can see I've got a certificate with these numbers on it. What I actually wanted was a detailed written report saying my product was safe to sell in Singapore. OK, well, that seven shillings and sixpence is doing a lot of heavy lifting. Um, you didn't mention any of that. You didn't mention the results were to support um, product safety in an external market. You didn't say that there was a regulatory background to it. So we've given you what you've asked for. We've given you a certificate for your product with those figures. And that's why context is so important. Probably the key takeaway from this part of the interview um, with Patrick is about context. So explaining to the lab what they want from the test, but also asking the question of why are we testing for this? And when I say that, it's the manufacturer saying that. Why am I testing for it? What do I want to achieve out of this? Um, most labs, as, as Patrick was saying, will give you guidance and tell you if testing is appropriate, um, but they do need for you to give them as much information as possible in order to sort of set the scene. It was interesting that he was saying sort of, you know, labs will give you fundamental advice as, as a given sort of, you know, you you I, I think he used the term basic. I wouldn't I wouldn't call it basic because I crikey, it must be very, very technical, but um, basic in 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 the sense of how uh, comprehensive it is, I suppose. Um, the more thorough the testing plan, obviously, the more your cost is going to increase because it will increase the workload. Um, but it was nice to sort of understand that 
the the lab sector is very much open to supporting manufacturers in giving them guidance on on what they should have but obviously just the the main message was give as much information as possible to the lab because they'll be able to do more with it to circle back once more to our bad news uh, <laughs> mentioned earlier in the episode um one of the major hurdles flagged was that lack of understanding as i mentioned around the food system and the significant barriers in place to deliver on roadmaps and i think heading into um the new year that's going to continue to be a massive problem and it's going to have consequences not just on food security as that report highlighted but also food safety um Again, one of the things that was flagged to us at the Business Leaders Forum is that there are so many rules in place and so many new rules in place, but not enough clarity. And, and you know, I, I think I would argue as well that the industry is all at different stages. So one person's go, steaming ahead with one sort of thing. Another person is, isn't. Um, and one of the standout comments for me at that at that forum was I'm just waiting to be told I'm doing something wrong. I think that was uh, I think there was a, a sort of general consensus of uh, agreement among the the, um, the manufacturers in the room there. It's, it's interesting you say that, Beth. I was uh, in attendance at uh, an allergen mock trial. Um, it must have been early October now. And that was an event specifically designed to try and give more guidance to businesses. And this was not just uh, manufacturers, but also food service businesses. And it went through a scenario looking at how businesses would have to respond in a situation where someone had an allergic reaction. And I think that perhaps more training of this nature is going to be necessary and more businesses need to be involved in it going forward because really we just, you know, with all of the responsibilities that are involved in running a food business of of any size really, you need to get that expertise in. You need these people who specialise in this area to help you manage this increasingly uh, complex area. So, I think that future events like that and and these kind of services can be can be play a critical role as companies look to understand this uh, this ever changing and and complex world of regulation. There's another thing, and you hear this a lot, specifically around laws and and relate back to regulations. There is a certain level that they are worded in such a way that they can be confusing, that you have to be an expert in that sort of area to understand the language being used. And if you don't understand the language being used, there might be the rules and regulations out there. But if you don't really know what, how that applies to you and you don't understand what it means, then you could be caught out for by no fault of your own, which kind of brings back to what Patrick was talking about earlier, but around having skilled people within your business and having the, the knowledge within your business to be able to predict regulatory changes as before they come up and the like. I don't know what side, whether or not it should be a case that the government should be making. Well, there is a, definitely already a feeling that the government should be doing more to tell people, the manufacturers exactly what they need to do, but perhaps put out the information in a way that is easier to understand. But also, if you are a manufacturer and you do have these kind of worries, just making sure that you do have somebody in your business that that is their role, that is their why they're working for you is to make sense of these regulations and to prepare for them to get ready for them. Um, because we are definitely right now in a period of massive change and those regulations can change at a drop of a hat at any time. And yeah, if they're not being clearly communicated, perhaps it's making sure that you've got somebody in your corner that's 
constantly keeping up to date on those. It's such a a good point. Why are anything that's regulation or legal based is always written in the most it's like it's like Yoda's written it it's completely word twisty so confusing it would be it would be really refreshing just to read some regulation that actually was simple English well if I if I put my my tinfoil hat on metaphorically I don't have one on me there is a theory they are written complicated on purpose so that the only people that can read these rules and regulations especially in the world of law is our lawyers they have tra- the reason they spend so much time doing their degrees and 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 you know the bar and whatever it is that you do to become a lawyer is that you you learn how to understand this language that the only people that can read these laws the only people that can fight for you in court and and do and you know come up with ways to stop these things from affecting you if you get caught out with them is because they've read it and they understand it they're not they they have not been written for the layman they have been written to be complicated as possible so that they can that there is a job for lawyers to understand them yeah, I mean, I am. Um, I don't know about that, but definitely reading regulation wants me to go to the bar uh, and have a, <laughs> uh, a big glass of wine to sort of um, pull the uh, the interview to conclusion before we hear from from Patrick's um, uh, final views. I um, we spoke about um, his his opinion on point of contact testing. Um, so here's his his last segment and and what he had to say. But I think what you're really getting at with portable testing is what's also known as point of contact testing or POC testing, which is more of your sort of higher tech um, handheld breeders, which I've, I've seen a lot about. And I actually wrote a piece about this a couple of years ago because there was a story in the paper about giving them to the public to go and test products in the shop, which I thought was um, probably running before we could walk. Firstly, what do you do if you get an adverse result? What what do customers do? They go, well, I, I found pesticides in my potatoes. Sounds so I'm, I'm on a budget, so I'm not going to ask you to give me the refund. I'm going to ask for 30% discount because I, I don't mind if I have to eat glyphosate. You know, I just like cheap potatoes. I mean, that's the sort of thing that was mooted in particular articles for point of contact testing, giving the freedom of consumers to go and do their own testing at the points of sale. And, and that is a thing that, that will come, but it's not without risk um, to everybody. Where Where is the burden of cost of any product report that comes from a consumer using a portable testing unit on a, a shelf? Where I think um, they're more likely to be used is things like um, big commodities, which you, you get held in port and you get point of contact testing for things like heavy metals, mycotoxins, that sort of thing, pesticides. And there's been a lot of work done on this. And and I'm a fan of technology. And I think we should welcome technology wherever it can be shown to make an improvement to food safety and consumer protection. One of the things I would say, it's important to understand what the instruments actually measure, what are the limitations to what they can measure, and those instruments that give a an acceptable or unacceptable measurement against the database understand how big is the database 
How many samples have you used to build the database? How many countries have you taken samples from? You know, have you taken samples of a commodity across all of the seasons? Is it affected by seasonality? Who's got access to the database? And how often is it updated? How up to date is it? And the easiest way to get fraudulent product onto the market is to corrupt the database that measures its acceptability. And, and this is one of the problems with things like honey sometimes that you can potentially put fraudulent products through as acceptable and, and legally acceptable and have those results included on a database that's used to measure you know, correct product. So if you can corrupt the database, what's to stop you then putting fraudulent product on the market at will? So how secure is the database? How broad is it? What have you used to build the database? How is it updated and when? Who's got access? All of those things. None of that says that this isn't a good thing. It is demonstrably a good thing. But these are things that I think as scientists you would ask. Also, when you get an adverse result, what does it mean? How adverse is it? You know, does it measure a large level of pesticides? You know, what are the limits of detection? What are the interferences that might come across? These are just questions that I think any scientific method should be able to defend. So yes, uh, I'm, I'm very much in favour, um, but I think I'd be asking some of the broader questions as well. Patrick, it's been an absolute delight speaking with you today. And I think we could probably speak for another hour on this topic because it is such a such a big Certainly. topic. Um, but you've you've given some excellent nuggets of, of information over the course of this hour, which I'm sure our listeners will find um, really fascinating, but also very useful as well. So thank you so much for your time today. Absolute pleasure. And thank you for having me on. You're most welcome. Thank you once again to Patrick. Well, that's about all the time we've got for this month's Food Manufacturer podcast. It always goes very, very quickly. Make sure you keep up to date with the latest news and insight on our website at foodmanufacture.co.uk. And you can also follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook and X, formerly known as Twitter. Uh, and make sure that you also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or any other platform where you usually listen to your podcast so you never miss an episode. Um, it's goodbye from me, Beth, and goodbye from the team as well. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Bye.